in uh, the scriptures, please, to Revelation. We are journeying through this book that some find greatly challenging. I do too, but it's uh, a story that, uh, and a, a vision and a prophecy and a testament to God that the church does well to hear. I'm going to restart at chapter 12 and read these words. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in uh, sorry. Yeah. I lost my place in the Bible. <laughs> the great dragon, I didn't plan that. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short." When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. On the heads of the beast seemed, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? 
The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is, in, is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He, was for, he for, also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for its man's number. His number is 666. We'll also get to chapter 14, but some bite-sized chunks. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're living real lives, not storybook or pretend, and we live in a real world, and we face the real questions, and are asked challenging, challenging things by people who say, where is your God? But thank you for this prophecy, this vision that John has recorded that you gave him that tells the truth. And in so doing, we're strengthened. That gives us wisdom and thereby we're equipped. That gives us insight that thereby we're not deceived. Holy Spirit, let us have ear, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the turning of the seasons. I know that because the Christmas merchandise is already making an appearance. Have you noticed? Do you want the really good news? There's about 110 sleeps to Christmas Day. I haven't got my extended advent calendar out yet. 
but it's not so long. Why am I mentioning Christmas? Well, believe it or not, this passage contains a nativity story. It contains the story of God at work sending his son, but it doesn't tell it like Matthew or Luke, those gospels that that carry the story of the birth of Jesus that we tell in the carols by candlelight service, surrounded by all the, the quaintness of that season. I've yet to have the courage to read this passage to the children Christmas Day. But maybe we're in error. Maybe by doing so, we so close the curtains to the reality of living faith in a world of struggle and strife. That John, and I believe that God has given us the story in this form to bring a corrective, not that it's overly sentimental what Matthew writes and what Luke writes, not at all. Read the story in reality, and you see in the story of, God, uh, of Jesus' birth in Luke and Matthew a story of poverty, a story of vulnerability, a story of being shut out and marginalized, a story of refugees, a story of God coming to the least. But we've made it, you know what you've made it. We've made it like this carol, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Ah. We all think of the grade one flautist and the, the small child and their solo, and it's lovely. But we don't tell the story of a woman who was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth, and an enormous, ferocious red dragon with multiple heads and power, a tail sweeping a third of the stars from the sky, stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child the moment it is born. It's a savage picture. The woman pregnant and radiant, labor in labor of crying out. The dragon is there, crouched, ready, ugly, as she is beautiful. The contrast is stark. It's a horror scene. The best of God in sending Jesus amongst us. The reference we know that it's Jesus is the, 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 the kind of reference in there to say that this male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and they who is snatched up to God, to his throne, is a reference back to Psalm 2. It points that this is the Son of God. This is Jesus, the one who will save us from our sins. And yet in that moment of utter vulnerability, you know what, well, I don't know what it's like, but for those of you who've given birth and been with your partner, wife, as they've given birth, it's not a moment of strength, is it? It's a moment of vulnerability as, as the woman gives birth and as the child, fresh from the womb, helpless and powerless, about to take its first breath, is brought to life. And here is that dragon about to snatch that life and devour and massacre and maim and tear apart. It was an 18 certificate on this sermon. John says, people of God, see the battle that is raging. See what we are involved in. What real faith is about. What Satan has always sought to do to rob and crush and destroy and devour and tear apart and oppose and thwart at every step, every action of God. 
In that moment of vulnerability, as the child emerges, the dragon lunges, but he is not victorious. What's the reference to? Well, Herod, Satan through Herod sought to squash the little life of Jesus as the children of Bethlehem were massacred. But God rescued. The dragon is robbed of his prey. but that doesn't stop his rage. We're told then of this this heavenly war across the heavens, of this contest raging. But the dragon and the hosts that accompany him are no match. They are tossed out to the earth. The language that John gives us here of, of great dragon, the ancient serpent, of the devil, of Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, all point to the one who has being consistently in Scripture there, but not majored upon, but reminding us that God is opposed, that there is real evil. But we're told that God is victorious. It's this verse in chapter 12. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. It's kind of like this picture of of kind of like dirty clothes just being tossed off and they're like in a dirty, smelly heap. That's kind of the image. Because God is God. You see, in the story of of Revelation in chapter 12, Jesus' birth does more than an excite wonder and awe from us. It incites evil. All through Jesus' life, Herod and Judas and Pilate and the rulers and the religious sought to oppose and stamp out the work of God in Jesus Christ. Someone uh, I heard recently was, was, was talking on this and saying, you know, it speaks to the condition of our, of our existence, of why we need a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior, Jesus Christ. Have he comes amongst us with great love? Yes, he does. But love finds its expression in Christ dying upon the cross, sacrificing himself. Why? Because of the rebellion. The rebellion that Satan, Satan was and is and accomplished in seeking to set himself up as a rival God. He was rebelling. The rebellion that is implicit in each one of of every human being on the planet. The rebellion of our heart that says, I will do it my way, not God's way. I will think I know better, not him. Rebellion. And the person said it like this. God is love, but if it was, was just kind of hearing that love, if that was all that would matter, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And why was it that Jesus, walking amongst the people of Palestine, of Israel, at the time of his human life amongst us, Why was it that as he loved and spoke of love and demonstrated love, they didn't go, oh yeah, this is what we need to do. And let's all kind of, all we need is love and and let's just get together. Love was embodied amongst them. Don't mishear me. The, The love of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, walking amongst them. But they were rebellious and prideful and hated him because he was the perfect expression of love. And they crucified him because of rebellion. 
because of our willful rejection of God and all that is good. And yet, God prevails. The question of chapter 12, can a small baby survive the madness of this wickedness? Can promise, gospel hope, beat a world of torture and violence and aggression? You know the prayer we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, don't we? Chapter 11 just heard it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And it is true. But walk out of this door and turn on the Sunday news and open the paper on Monday, and you will be valid in asking the question, really? That the kingdom of God has become the kingdom of earth, that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that Christmas story of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And 2,000 years later, the awful atrocities we see. And the marital breakups of the selfish choices of greed, arrogance. And Revelation speaks truly to the church. Speaks truly to us and says, have this in mind. John and Jesus saying to us, don't overestimate, don't overestimate the power of evil, but don't underestimate it either. But see the action of God. The child survives. Salvation is assured that God's rule is intact. The dragon tries again against this woman. He hasn't managed to capture the child, but goes after the mother. We're told that this serpent spews water like a river to overtake the woman, to drown her. But notice the earth, verse 16. The earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed. God is able to use so many ways that he is truly the Lord. That even in unusual ways, he is able to rescue and deliver and prevail in what seems to be against all odds. The dragon is deprived a second time, but he's furious. And looking around for anyone more to get, and he turns his attention The dragon is so enraged, verse 17, that the woman went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That our foe is furious because he's defeated, but is furious and rages and riles against God. And he expresses that by targeting God's people, those who obey him and love Jesus. The persecuted church in the end of the first century that John wrote to would know about that. They'd know about the seemingly powerful beast attacking again and again the faithful Christians who weren't 
who weren't radicalizing the kingdom of, of Rome. They weren't seeking to depose Caesar. They weren't kind of taking up arms and marching on Rome. They were living their lives, honoring the government, being faithful in their witness, being good citizens, caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan, and praying for the good of Rome. And yet, Rome was all out to stamp them out. See, says John in his revelation, it's the action of a furious opponent of God, hell-bent on destroying God's people. story tells us that the dragon is on the edge of the sea, failed twice, and now out for blood. And he does it in two ways, to subvert or to conquer faith. He'll attempt both. He will try to subvert it or conquer it. The thing about Satan, this accuser, this devil, this liar, and then again and again, you learn this lesson, that he doesn't play fair. Do you know that? That if you're down, he'll kick you. He won't kind of say, well, in an English kind of gentlemanly fashion, well, take a breather, you know, come on, get up and you know, gather yourself and then we can start again. No. He's furious and enraged and will seek to subvert or conquer us. never plays fair. He's not a gentleman. And his main quarrel isn't just against the whole of humanity, though he is happy to be worshipped by them. We're told particularly it's against those who hold to Jesus and obey God's commandments. And the cost is high the blood of the lamb. It took Jesus' death to bring victory, to be the conqueror. We're told in verse 11, and by the word of their testimony, that's the faithful followers of Jesus, that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The devil will seek to frighten us into disobedience or deceive us into illusion. He will use power. He has power. He has power in this world through government and through religion particularly, false religion, to cause us to disobey or to be disillusioned. And we're told in in the next chapter, in chapter 13, in the symbolic language, that there there are two beasts that come to assist the dragon, that the dragon empowers. There's a sea beast and there's this kind of of lamb-like beast. The sea beast, we're told, is kind of a ludicrous hodgepodge, an amalgam of creatures, a patchwork of a lion, a leopard, and a bear. It's horrible looking. It's not meant to be, oh, that's a nice creature. Let's model it and give it to our children. It's terrifying. And there's a land beast that's kind of clumsy, But remember, who is the true lamb in the story of Revelation? Jesus Christ. And this is a counterfeit lamb. An illusionary, a delusion to deceive. But Satan seeks to affect our behavior and a belief. 
He seeks to use the sea beast to frighten us into disobedience. Chapter 13, verse 7. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. In other words, the structures and and functions of society, of government, are the stuff that we have to do to make life happen, but he will use it to corrupt it, to cause God's people to be frightened into disobedience, of not standing true to radical faith. In the language of first century, to get the Christians to bow down to Caesar and confess Caesar is Lord, to pay allegiance and honor to the powers of this world. Satan tried it with Jesus in the temptations. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this. And Jesus said, no, I will not. The land beast will seek to deceive. Verse 14, chapter 13. Because of the signs he was given to do on behalf of the first beat, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword yet lived. That's Satan's strategy, to do, intimidate and to deceive, to corrupt, to cause God's people to give up, or water down. And John, through this book of Revelation, says, have ears to hear, read this story and understand. In so doing, you are equipped to stand faithfully and to endure and to understand that things may come against you and happen to you that are awful and horrific, but keep on trusting in God. You know, you read the stories of what happened and what is happening to Christians and you just can't read it. Horrific wickedness vented on believers of Jesus. Being exiled. Clever ways to persecute and get someone to renounce and recant and deny Jesus. Torture, physical maiming. And it happens. And Revelation says it, that it's not that God has abandoned us because our certainty of eternal life is assured. He says, remember, that our, li- our lives, our names are written in the book of life. They're written in God's book. They can't be erased. But Satan will nevertheless do horrific things. See, the call of of Revelation is is for Christians to live in a difficult age, but to live faithfully to the ways of Jesus. To bring the kingdom here. And not to do it as as the beast would do. That's That's the thrust of this message. Satan wants us to be deceived or to corrupt our faith, to do it the world's way. Jesus never did. Jesus won the victory by going faithfully, obediently to the cross in self-sacrificial love. The world says, you know, fight, 
you know, we, let's, if we, we're wrong, let's fight back. Let's take ven- the root of vengeance. Let's, let's seek to, to use power for our own ends and our own gaze and establish it in ways that we understand, whether it's, you know, punch the bully back in the schoolyard. You know, it's st- yeah, I was thinking about this. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a nonconformist in, in many ways. That means I don't like the link of church and state because I think state seeks to corrupt true faith. I also, you know, and you can debate with me at length about this and we can have good discussion, but I also, if we went to war, I would be a conscientious objector. That doesn't say I dishonor and deny any of those who fight on our behalf, but I truly can't with all conscience say Jesus would be in the armed forces. You may have a different view and I don't judge you for that, but it seems to me that Jesus, when Given the option of calling down fire on a village that disbelieved, you know, the sons of Barangi said, you know, burn them up. Or at the, the arrest in the garden, take the sword and, and fight back. And Jesus said, no, I could summon a legion of angels if I wanted to decimate them, but this isn't the way of God. It seems to be again and again the true progressives, the true kingdom bringers have understood this whether it's in the family life or the national scene. Martin Luther King again and again, of Gandhi even, of people who say we will not fight in the world's way, we will fight the gospel way. It seems foolishness and recklessness to the world because the world knows the way of violence. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. It's a different way. But it's a powerful way. It's not dumb passivity. It's hugely radical. To say, I'd be willing to lay down my life if called. And not just in a great moment of going out in a horrific moment, though I don't, I don't relish that thought. But in the daily, in the moment by moment of laying down my life, of dying to self, that's radical, that's self-sacrificial, that's powerful living. We're told in the story, reminded that our names are written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world, verse 8. Verse 10, at the end, in the face of those who will go into captivity, well, you'll go. If you're going to be killed by the sword, you will be killed. The reminder, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And in answer to the beast, uh, the, the one who would seek to deceive and corrupt true worship, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, be wise. The truth for the church is these things happen, but do not be discouraged. Do not sway to the left or the right. Have endurance and faith. Be wise. Use your heads. This famous number of 666, well, people go to town on that. I think it represents triple failure. The holy number is seven. 
triple perfection, 777. 666 is, is three times human failure. Of all the ways that we would seek to do it in our own strength, our own ways, inspired by rebellious attitudes, whether it's through religious action or through the power enforced by the state and by those who are strong, violent, or by all idolatry. It's again and again the triple failure that does not lead to God. The only way to God to perfection is putting trust and hope and faith in the true Lamb. What does it mean to sort of have this mark of the beast? It seems to be kind of the best guess I have at this and, you know, Revelation, sometimes we have to not go out on a limb with wide wildness, but take our best hunch. I think it's a reference back in the Old Testament to the Shema where, where, God's, where the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament were called to write out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, and they were to write it on their doorposts and, and bind it on their heads, and they had those little boxes. And it's kind of this reminder that, that for God's people, we don't bow down and worship the ways of the world or follow foreign gods or do it in the ways that, we, that Satan would seek us to get it to. We stay true. And we kind of bind metaphorically to ourselves and know that God has marked as we bear his name as followers of Jesus. Do you know that? And the challenge will be that people will know and they will cause us to do things differently and want us to do things differently. And the challenge then is to stand firm and straight and say, I will not bow down. I stand for Christ. In these passages, we have this unholy trinity of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. who wreak the world with fear and oppression and deception. But notice in the story, the dragon is beaten, the sea beast is resisted, and the land beast is figured out. We're in, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We endure and prevail and stand firm, and we are wise to the schemes of the evil one. Do not underestimate, but neither be naive. Gosh, this is a lot, isn't it? Come up for air. Chapter 14, I haven't got time to read it, but it, I encourage you to do so. In the reality of the stark world we, in which we live and the hope that is coursing its way through those two dark chapters. Chapter 14, the lamb and the 144,000 give us three wonderful little pictures of how God's people are to live out enduring radical faith. And they're slightly bizarre because they're about worship, they're about the preach, proclaim word of God and about holy living. How is God's kingdom brought on this earth? through worship, through the declaration of Christ's lordship, the preaching of God's truth, and through living it out in daily acts of holy living. What a radical manifesto to change the world. Isn't it? Here we have in, in chapter 14, the worship. It's in response to the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ being amongst us, have our veil of, of our perception drawn back to see that worship is powerful. Worship in the everyday, but also sung worship. Why do we spend time in church singing songs? Oh, let's just get on to going home or the coffee or the, 
the Bible bit. Because worship is instituted and led by Jesus. And if he thinks it's worth it, and we have this picture in Revelation, jolly well, church, let's see it as a priority. When we don't feel like it, let's engage our will and our our mind. Let's worship God truly. It's led by the Lamb who's building the kingdom up, inaugurating the rule and reign of God. How? Through the worship of God's people. Someone has said this, excessive activism is typical of those who do not live by grace. That if we think it's just about doing and doing and doing, we stop. And we must remember as we focus and fix our eyes on Jesus and honor him and take time out in the day and the week and the year to prioritize. He is the Lord. We honor him. We don't play the world's game. We stand apart and separate, true to Christ, worshiping him. Kingdom of God comes. Archbishop William Temple said this. No, it's powerful. It took me a while to think about it and think, is this true? It seems radical. He says, this world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing, and that is worship. This world can be saved, clearly through Jesus, but this world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing, and that is worship. That's hugely radical. That as we center Christ, as we go Christ's way, as we live in Christ's radical gospel manifesto, as the church stays true as the beautiful bride to the Lamb who has called us and commissioned us, as we do it God's way, it has power to effect to be salt and light in this world. Be worshippers, God's people, privately and corporately. Through preaching, the angel flying, proclaiming, verse 6 of chapter 14, to those who live on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of the water. The water. When we proclaim Christ, whether it's me or Philip or some other preacher or you, in taking and loving the name of Jesus and speaking it freely and confidently and with, with great love for him, you proclaim a different lordship, a different rule, a different way, the way it was made to be. That as Christians, again and again, it's right that we come to church and it's right that we listen to sermons. I'm sorry if we bore you and we make it tedious. It shouldn't be. But you know, in your week and my week when I... I go through life, it's so easy to be muffled and harassed and forget the truth, but we draw together and we take time out and we hear that God is great and good and he's ruling and victorious and his kingdom will know no end and we can repeat it like that and in so many ways as we tell the gospel stories again and again and it stirs something inside. A countercultural strength and determination to say this world is not fated to collapse and destruction. There is one ruling and reigning. Hallelujah. That the things of cancer and brokenness and devastation are not the last full stop on this life. Jesus is. Hallelujah. That we have our vision and mind lifted high again. Preaching is powerful. And these beasts from the sea and the, 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 the world will try to ridicule it and demean it and belittle it. But we will not stop telling of Jesus and the kingdom. Preaching gives the crowded and the muffled world a reminder that there's another way, the Jesus way. 
in this busy world of clamoring voices, preaching good news is an an oasis in the sea of bad news and of hopelessness. You know, the news media do not really tell us good news stories, do they? I don't listen too often anymore. I used to a lot to Radio 4's Today program. You know that thing with John Humphreys and all that? Why? Not because I don't want to know the world, but I get depressed. By 9 o'clock in the morning, the world's ending in five different ways by lunchtime. Calamity upon calamity of the, you know, of crash. Now that is the world we live in. I'm not belittling that. But it so shapes me as I'm waking up that I forget that I live and serve and have the God, living God within me. And it's not surprising, this is another debate entirely, but they want to stop thought for the day. You know that bit at 10 to, a nine, at 10 to 8, because it's anachronistic and it's not part of the modern world and it's outdated and outmoded. And I was thinking about it, I was thinking, actually it's a moment, a glimmer of hope in the midst of three hours of depression and it wants to be cut out. I say no to that because it's preaching. I know there's other faiths in there, but when the Christians speak of Jesus, it brings a glimmer of hope into a world of lostness. In preaching, we're reminded we're reconciled to God, and God is bringing his kingdom. Jesus is king. The third strategy he gives us, holy living, of actions which express our behavior and speech that demonstrates our love and the presence of Christ within us. In the public and the private, around the living room table and the boardroom. In the big and the small, holy living, faithful living. Someone says this, true victories happen slowly and imperceptibly, but they have far-reaching effects. In the limelight, our faith that God is the Lord of history may sometimes appear ludicrous. but There is something in history that confirms our faith. Again and again, through the lives of countless, nameless, faithful believers, God's kingdom is coming. And is greater than it was yesterday and greater than it was in the first century through the lives lived out by faithful believers. You know, Billy Graham has preached to over a billion people. That's incredible. But there's more than a billion Christians on this planet. And our reach in advertising terms is far bigger in the life of one person, one brilliant evangelist. As we live it out, we demonstrate the lordship of Jesus. Three activities by which the church through the ages, we now oppose everything that is railed against God, that enable us to resist, to fight back, and to flourish. We're in the middle of a battle of a blustering dragon saying, it's my way, and the world is deceived. Versus a powerful lamb who is risen. Let's pray together. Do you believe it? Will you live it? Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill us because we are weak. We get consumed with worry and doubt. 
um, stuff in this life terrifies us. But I pray, fill us again. Not just us here in, in our life and living, but your church widely. And I pray for radical, radical redetermination of your people to live the Jesus way. And that we would be characterized as worshipers and truth speakers who aren't hypocritical but match word and deed. We can't do it in our own Jesus. We can't do it. And if you know how weak you are, be asking God now to forgive you and fill you again with his Holy Spirit because that's the way. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of his bride. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help your church that is hard-pressed because of persecution in places, but help us here in an age of, of cynicism and doubt and secularism and of, you know, of watering stuff down, of sitting lightly to these profound truths. Help us, Lord, to live differently, not as zealots and fanatics in the world's term, but as radical believers who aren't obnoxious, but are obedient. Who are good news bearers. And I pray you deliver us from the evil one. Even now we are in a battle. We are in a battle. He will seek to deceive and overpower and distort and corrupt. And he's doing that. We are in a battle that rages. He is furious. And I pray for faithful endurance in this congregation, for wisdom. For heartfelt, certain confidence that we are his, the risen lamb. And I dare to pray, Jesus, that this community and the communities that we're part of would be transformed as we live this way. Please, Lord, send revival. Send your spirit and great power in us that we should be bold and faithful witnesses. And that the true lamb would be worshipped and honored in this day and this age in these places. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Alan.